they were uh, singing that, I just was thinking about um, how we're still kind of becoming a community together, right? We're pretty uh, young on this journey, but we do things like uh, sit in a circle, which hopefully just sort of reminds us and speaks to us that, like, this is about more than uh, just coming and hearing something, but it's about belonging to each other. And that's something we keep growing into. Um, but I'm really grateful for moments like that that help us reflect on that. Now, we've been talking about time, but I want to, first of all, start with a little imagination with you. So if you would, uh, imagine that tomorrow is the first day of a brand new job. Maybe you're doing a quick transition, maybe you've been out of work for a while, but let's just say that tomorrow is a brand new day at a brand new job that you're starting. So today, you're getting all your stuff together, right? You're making sure that you've got your commute figured out, you're making sure that you've got your briefcase packed, you're making sure that you have your best outfit picked out, because you don't want to brag, but you know you look good when you put that on and you want to make a good impression, right? So you're doing all this sort of prep, and your head's in a million different places, and you're a little bit excited, and you're a little bit nervous, and you're wondering what it's going to be like, and you're pretty sure that you made a good decision with this job, but until you get into it, how will you know for sure? So with all of that going on, you're running around the house getting ready. There's a knock at the door, and you open the door, and it's your new boss for your new job that you start tomorrow. They've come to your house. The thing is, it's not just them. You realize it's your new boss, but behind her is a work crew, like people with, with, with tool belts on. And, and before they even explain what's happening, they just barge in. And you say, oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry. I start tomorrow. Are, are you here for a reason tonight? And she says, oh, don't worry about it. Just tell me where the bedroom is. And before you have a chance to realize the absurdity of this, you point her to the master bedroom, and she walks in there, points to the work crew, tells them what to do. And they start installing a a large flat screen TV on the ceiling that you're going to see when you lay in bed. And you say, what is going on? And she says, oh, don't worry. This is great. We do it with all of our employees. That's just going to have all of our quarterly performance statistics up there all the time, along with a running ticker of our stock price, so that you can be really tuned in as you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning. And you're thinking, this is ludicrous. What is happening? What have I gotten myself into? And as you're thinking about this, and before you can catch up and stop them, another uh, couple from the work crew go into your bathroom where they, like, install these porcelain versions of your company's logo all over, in the shower, in the mirror, where you're sitting on the toilet, you're going to be staring at your company's logo. Something about this seems wrong, right? There's something about this that doesn't, like, quite feel very right. Well, for for the last four weeks, we've been talking about space and time and how they're connected. And I think the reason this is bizarre is because we're talking about the most intimate spaces in your life, right? Your bedroom, your bathroom, your home. And we're talking about those those intimate spaces being colonized by, uh, by work, by economics, by these identities that we step into when we leave the home, right? Well, let me remind you where we started this whole thing uh, with a, a guy who knew a couple of things named Einstein who discovered through math, and then we've, like, we, I said, <laughs> we have figured out that, that he was right. <laughs> People who know what they're doing have figured out this is actually true, that space and time are really the same fabric woven together somehow. And so when we talk about space, it makes sense to, to, to talk about time in similar ways. Einstein says it like this, and we looked at it before. Space by itself and time by itself are doomed to fade away into mere shadows, And only a kind of union of the two will preserve an independent reality. Now, we looked at that week one, and we we talked about how we should perhaps think about moving through time in a way similar to how we talk about moving through space. But I also want to show you, this isn't just like a recent insight from the physicists in our world. 
It's interesting that the language, it's almost identical that you find in some of the great spiritual tradition, like uh, spoken by the great Jewish scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel, speaking not from the perspective of modern physics, but from the perspective of the tradition of the Jewish scriptures and the practice of the Jewish faith. Heschel speaks like this about Sabbath, but listen to the time-space stuff going on. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of things of space, On the Sabbath, we try to become attuned to holiness in time. The seventh day is like a palace in time with a kingdom for all. It's not a date, but an atmosphere. It's not a different state of consciousness, but a different climate. It is as if the appearance of all things somehow changed. The difference between the Sabbath and all other days is not to be noticed in the physical structure of things in their spatial dimension. Things don't change on that day. There's only a difference in the dimension of time. So we've been moving through and talking about how it is that our time is shaped. And we've been pointing to the spatial metaphor, first of all, because I think it's actually true that space and time are somehow connected, but also maybe it helps us think a little more creatively and get out of some of the ruts that are not working for us and the way that we interact with time. And I just want to observe that like, all of us would sort of be taken aback that our most intimate physical spaces would be colonized by like work or economics or like the market like that, right? But, but I think a lot of us actually allow the most intimate moments in time, like in our daily routine, to be colonized by that kind of stuff. Like I don't know how your day begins, but it's all too easy for my day to begin something like this. I'm asleep and my alarm clock goes off and before I even move the rest of my body, my hand just reaches over and my phone is my alarm clock so I turn off the alarm and I grab the phone and before I move my body, I'm already on my email to see if I've missed anything that's come in since last night. And then by the way, I missed a few texts and now I start stressing because everybody knows that you're not a good person if you go more than 10 minutes without responding to a text in 2017, right? And I went to bed a little early, my friends were up till two and now I'm like hours behind on getting back to these texts and I'm afraid what they're thinking about my moral character, right? And then I've got to check Twitter because something really important might have been tweeted between the hours of two and six, especially now that White House policy is being disseminated on Twitter first, right? So like you just don't know. Like, what has happened in the world and if you need to get your hands on this thing? So, so I haven't even moved my body yet, but it's email and text and Twitter. And it's like this very intimate time at the very beginning of the day. It's the first stimuli that, that hit my, my brain, my body, right? And like, and like there it is, work and, and the world and commerce and politics and all of that. And, and it's like if somebody knocked on my door and tried to invade my space like that, I would just quickly recognize how messed up that is, right? Because in, 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 in our intimate spaces in life, we know that those are the places that we want uh, to be furnished or decorated with the things that speak deeply to us about who we are. So like on your nightstand, you probably don't have a, a, a stock ticker with your employer's stock price. On your nightstand, you probably have a picture of people you love or people who love you. Right? And when you see them, it, it speaks deeply to you about who you have come from and who you are, that your story is rooted in relationship, right? You might have on the wall a, a photo or a painting or a phrase or a scripture uh, that, that speaks in those intimate and tender physical spaces to you about who you are and what your story means. But then on time, on our calendar, the earliest moments of our day, the last moments of our day, um, just on and on, we sort of easily let those, those times be colonized in ways that we would never let space be colonized so much. And so I want to talk today a little bit about daily 
rhythms. This is sort of, the, we've been sort of doing a big funnel, if you haven't noticed. We started out with seasons of life, and then talked about landmarks in time year to year, and then we talked about the Sabbath weekly rhythm, and today we're moving all the way into the, the movement of your, of your every day. Now, uh, there are alternatives, right? Like, it doesn't have to be that those most intimate moments are colonized by smartphones or what's happening in the daily news. Uh, as I look at the scriptures, there are patterns in Jesus's life that, that you could read right by if you're not paying close attention. And uh, I want to show you one of those patterns. This is in the book of Luke, chapter 5. There's just this one little sentence that Luke drops in there, but it characterizes Jesus' life on a regular basis when he says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, when I look at Jesus, I think I would like to be like Jesus. I, I don't mean that cheaply. I mean that deeply. Like, I would like to have the courage uh, to love the way that Jesus loves. I would like to have the compassion that he has to be so available to the, the brokenness around him to be able to move toward it with heart and body. I would like to have the guts to stand up to the things that are broken in the world, to push back against the systems that are hurting people in the world. I would like to be like that. But it's easy to like read through the Gospels or to think vaguely about the example of Jesus and miss the fact that we actually are given clues on how it is that he sustains that kind of life, how he sustains that rootedness, that bravery, that love. And I can't help but think that this, this little thing that gets dropped in here is actually opening us up to a, a big thing in Jesus' life, that it was regular in the pattern of his days to withdraw to lonely places and pray. Now, you see that, and you might think, you know, Jesus is really spontaneous. He just knows when there are those moments when he needs to leave the crowd behind who are just, like, trying to grab him and get to him, that, that he just sort of, from time to time, when he feels like that's what he needs, he knows to move toward that. But that would also miss some context around Jesus that puts this verse in a different light. So here's, uh, this will blow your mind a little bit, but Jesus was a first-century Jewish man. Okay. <laughs> Which means he would do the things that a first century Jewish man would do. And one of the things that a first century Jew would do is pray at regular times of the day in a way that's actually sort of predetermined or prescribed for the religious life of the Jewish people. Uh, this is something that's going on way before Jesus, and Jesus is born into this tradition, and it's safe to assume he would have practiced this tradition. We can like, go back centuries earlier and find a little example of this in the Psalms where we read this. The psalmist writes, seven times a day I praise you. Now, again, kind of like with the Jesus scripture, you might think, boy, that's great. This person just so spontaneously praises God seven times a day. That's probably not what this is referring to. This is probably referring to a pattern of regularly praying at preset times. If you're in Jerusalem, going to the temple at preset times and letting that structure of pre, uh, pre-decided prayer shape your day. Uh, this would be normal for Jesus. And I want to press into it a little bit because I think... Um, is actually a real gift here. We're talking about how to shape our days more thoughtfully, how to structure our time more meaningfully, and, and what kind of sort of fixtures in time, like what kind of things we should insert into our daily rhythm, not like out of obligation, not to prove anything, not to make anything happen, but to ground us, to give us courage, uh, to make us more alive to what we're supposed to be alive to. And, um, and one of those patterns uh, go, persists beyond the time of Jesus. 
See, uh, so you've got the psalmist way before Jesus saying at regular times of the day, I move toward God in prayer. And we have Jesus regularly withdrawing and sort of living out that pattern. In the book of Acts, you see the apostles doing things like going to the temple to pray. And that's probably them responding to the set time for prayer when the good Jews in Jerusalem go to the temple to pray. And early on, the, the church, the, the Christians, are essentially Jews who have met Jesus and their eyes have been opened to what God is doing through Jesus. And so the church starts out as basically a Jewish thing. And a Jewish people would have kept those daily prayers going. But then what happens is it sort of gets diluted as more and more Gentiles start sort of flooding the ranks of the church. And they're not all acquainted with these practices. And so uh, then you see a, a few hundred years later, uh, we see Constantine has this revelatory moment where he realizes that Rome should be a Christian empire. So watch this now. The nation, the, the empire, the Roman Empire is declared Christian by its leader. And then the next thing that happens is many followers of Jesus start saying to themselves, okay, we're saying this whole thing is Christian, but it just doesn't look much like the vision that Jesus gave us for the way things should work. Our politics don't feel very Christian, though we're saying it's a Christian empire now. Our economics don't feel very Christian because they are breaking the backs of the poor and lifting up the rich. And so these followers of Jesus keep saying, we call it a Christian nation, but it somehow doesn't feel like the world that Jesus envisioned. And if you think I'm not just talking about 1,600 years ago, you're paying very good attention. That's great. But there they are saying that, and some of them are saying, how do we recover the, the potency of the way of Jesus? How do we root ourselves deeply in this when there's a lot of stuff around us that just feels like it's missing it or corrupting it or dragging us away from it? And some of them go out into the wilderness or out to the desert, and they form what we call the monastic movement. And one of the things they do is they recover this pattern of daily fixed hour prayer. So I want to I move into this tradition that has actually been with the followers of Jesus since basically the very beginning. And I want to see if we could learn a little bit from it. And uh, I'm not suggesting that all of us are going to go from here doing these fixed hours of prayer, but there's a tradition that's been handed down that we could benefit from and so if you guys don't mind, I thought we would learn about it together. Now to do that, I want to bring up somebody who's more experienced than this, or with this than me. Because we, uh, we don't want to be the kind of church with the kind of preachers who like, talk about stuff they read in a book that they haven't lived. Um, and quite frankly, I've not lived deeply in this pattern of fixed hour prayer, but I have a really good friend who has. Uh, Chad Meister is a professor of philosophy and theology at Bethel College. He's like a world-class philosopher and theologian. I asked him on Sunday how many books have his name on him, and he, he, he was counting, he got to like 30, and then he gave up, truly. Um, he's a world-class philosopher theologian. He works in a bunch of different areas, uh, but he's also a really dear friend to me. Uh, he's helped shape this church from the inside out, and uh, Chad is uh, one of the most authentic followers of Jesus that I know. And so uh, Chad uh, has practiced this way of prayer that's rooted in this tradition for a while, and I thought we would just learn from him together for a bit. Does that sound good? Excellent. Will you guys please welcome Chad Meister? Chad, welcome to the rug. Thank you. Chad, uh, Chad was like fighting a little bit of sickness on Sunday, or at least a sore throat, and then you taught for like 17 hours today, I think, already. At least, at least. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. the tea and the honey are doing You're the a trick, trooper. Though. Thanks for joining us. Um, so Chad, uh, we're talking about fixed hour prayer, and we'll explain that a little more in a bit. But first, I just wonder if you could take us into your story. How did something like this become a part of your practice? 
So um, I became a Christian when I was in my early 20s, and that was a very exciting time in my spiritual life. Um, I felt uh, very close to God, like many people who become Christians, you know, as adults. It was an exciting time. It was a new relationship, and so like in many new relationships, um, there's just energy and all of that, and so that really carried me in my prayer time for, for quite some time. If we jump ahead, though, about 10 years, I was in seminary and learning a lot of theology and uh, biblical studies and all that. Um, and it was very dry spiritually, though, and that's not an unusual experience for people in seminary. They're focused so much on their studies that they sort of uh, are lax in their spiritual life. And that was happening to me, and it was very dry. And I wasn't sure what to do about it, and I stumbled across a book by uh, Richard Foster called Celebration of Discipline. And in that book, he um, introduces some practices in the church, some spiritual practices in the church that go back to the earliest centuries, um, things that I'd never heard of, like solitude and silence and meditation. And so um, I thought, wow, I'm kind of an adventurous sort. I want to try this. So uh, I spent um, some time in solitude, you know, maybe an hour. And then <laughs> I thought, well, let me be a little bit more aggressive here. So I actually went to a monastery the first time uh, that I went to a monastery, and I was there for 24 hours, and it was just a, a surreal experience. And I, when I was there, I thought nothing was happening, and it was very boring. But when I left, I realized something did happen to me. And so I began to do those on a semi-regular basis. So uh, if we jump ahead, though, um, another 10 years, I was having sort of a daily devotional time that had become part of my daily practice in the morning, morning devotions. That was good. And I was also doing some of these other disciplines occasionally. But I realized that um, my spiritual life, my walk with God is kind of erratic. It's kind of whimsical. I mean, some days I feel like praying. I know what to pray. Other days not. And I just didn't feel really centered in my life, centered in God. And so um, I heard about this elderly nun who was taking people through an ancient practice in the church called the Ignatian Exercises. And, um, and people were really being transformed, and this was lasting for a long time in their lives. It was very influential in their lives. So I thought, I want to try that. So I went and met with this, um, this elderly nun and got to know her and then asked her if she would guide me through that. And there are different ways of going through the Ignatian Exercises. There's the one-month uh, method and there's the eight-month method. So I, I asked her if I could do the eight-month approach. So we did that. So for eight months, we met on a regular basis every week, and she had these prayer exercises that she would have me do every day. And it was through that experience that I was introduced to the daily office. Mm. By the way, every time, every time Chad mentions his elderly nun friend, I think, I kind of want an elderly nun. <laughs> um, that'd, be, that'd be great. Um, so Chad, tell us, uh, tell us sort of what is the shape of so this is called sometimes fixed hour prayer, daily prayer, or daily office, the divine liturgy, liturgy of the hours, right? There's all these different phrases, right. but what are they all kind of describing? So they're all kind of describing um, a set time of prayer every day. And this goes back to, as you were mentioning earlier, this goes back to the earliest centuries of the church where these communities were oftentimes um, out in the desert. There were monasteries, um, there were nunneries, and sometimes just communities of people that wanted to really focus on prayer. And so the, the leaders of these communities, the abbots, came up with what they called rules or guides for how you could live throughout the day, both working and praying. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that's what monks do. They pray all the time. Mm -hmm. And so this was a structure for how you can do that seven or eight times every day. Every three hours, uh, many of these monks would do that. And so one of the most important of these rules is called the Rule of St. Benedict, which goes back to the sixth century and has been the rule that shaped monasteries all around the world, even to this, to this very day. Um, but there are also ways of entering into this rule or this practice for lay people, people who can't spend all day long um, in prayer. 
And so this uh, daily practice for lay people, we'll mm -hmm. call it, um, is also a form of the daily office. And so basically what you do is you have a prayer book, and there are many different kinds from different uh, streams of Christianity, but you have a prayer book. And uh, for me, it's three or four times a day, I pray through this prayer book. And it includes um, psalms and set prayers, prayers that people have written about the world and about the poor and about your family. And so it just guides you through this prayer time, 15 minutes minimum uh, per time if you'd like, or up to an hour, depending on how you want to approach it. Yeah, so for you it might be first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning. And then? At noon, noon and then in the evening. In the so evening. That's, that's, you know, four times would be ideal if you could. Mm -hmm. Morning, noon, evening, and then when you go to bed. But yeah. three or four times I think is uh, really helpful. That's my ideal, so I shoot for that. It yeah. doesn't always happen either. One of the things about Benedict that's so beautiful is he said, um, let's not be too legalistic about this. Let's mm -hmm. not be pharisaical about this. This is, this is a guide. This is meant to be a help for us in our spiritual lives. And, you know, if things come up, don't worry about it, but just let it be a guide, and that's how I see it in my life. Yeah, it's, it, I was going to say, like, as I hear you talk about it, what I don't hear, like, like I, I didn't really hear the word should, mm. which, like, I, I think that comes up a lot in certain forms of religious bag. I, sh I should pray more because um, that's what a good person does or something like that. I hear more, like, desire driving this. Mm. I heard, like, a desire for a greater groundedness, right. a greater centeredness, yeah. um, and it sounds like you, you found some of that through doing this. Yeah, I have. I have. It's been really helpful for me in my, uh, in my spiritual life. So I've been doing it formally for about five years, informally mm -hmm. for about five more years, so quite a long time. Yeah. I was, I was asking Tammy uh, along the way here, my wife Tammy, uh, tonight. I said, so how has my practice of, uh, of the daily office affected our marriage, would you say? Yeah, I was very curious question. to hear what she would say about uh -huh. that. And um, she said... It, sorry, did you include the part where you do chanting now? Because that might be weird <laughs> at the house. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have never chanted in front of anyone okay, except okay. for God. I chant regularly now, so uh, I am an odd person. But uh, adventurous, like I said, uh, free spirit. Yeah. But I, I love chanting. Um, What'd she say about the effect on... Yeah, so she said that, um, you know, you become much more focused in your life and what you do. And she said you become much more aware of my own needs, of her needs. Really? Yeah, that That's was really surprising to me. Yeah. So that can be an encouragement for, for some of you, right? So, yeah, that's right. That's good. Some, some people are like elbowing their spouses. You're going to pray a fixed hour prayer for the next month, buddy. Um, no, that's great. Um, uh, Chad, I also, um, well, okay, sorry, take me a little further into the, the shape of some of these traditional uh, scripts of prayer. Like what would, a, what would one morning sort of package of prayer look like? What would be in that, yeah. that book? So, so you start off with, uh, with an opening statement. So it might be something like um, from Psalm 51. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Mm -hmm. And so every morning, that's a prayer mm -hmm. that you begin with. And then you just reflect on that and you pray that. And then you wait uh, for a minute or so. And then you move into a psalm reading or singing or chanting. <laughs> um, and then you read some scripture. And so the scriptures that you read um, are scriptures that are connected to the liturgical calendar, the church calendar. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the scriptures that you read, you read a little bit from the Old Testament, a little bit from the New Testament. And they're the same scriptures that people are reading all around the world and have been reading those scriptures on a regular basis for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So you read that. And then you have um, a time of, of, again, reading or maybe singing uh, what's called a canticle. Mm -hmm. And a canticle is a little piece of scripture, usually, that is um, put to, to song. Mm -hmm. So you can sing that or read that. Um, and then you have these set prayers that you read. And so these are prayers that have been written down, some of them for almost 2,000 years ago, wow. these prayers. And beautiful prayers. And then you have a time where you can um, pray extemporaneously, just your own prayers. 
then a time of reflection, then you pray the, the Lord's Prayer, and then you have a closing statement, and then you're done. Yeah. Now, all of that would show up in one of these uh, prayer books or office books, right? Right. So we're going we're gonna to buddy up with Chad here and make sure that we, later this week, uh, put like an Amazon reading list out, just in case you'd like to get your hands. There's, right, there's some, some ancient books that you can still get, or some modern renditions of books right. that help. And you even apps. You can, even apps, apps, great. Yeah. Even phone apps. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's yeah. great. Um, Chad, one thing that I love uh, that I know about you, um, something that I think we both kind of share in our hearts, is also a, like a really deep conviction about um, that th- we can sort of walk with neighbors uh, who believe things very differently from us. Mm. And I know that you've had some experience even with how this works for people that maybe don't share the beliefs that this community holds at its center. Yes, yes. So um, three people come to mind here that I'll mention briefly on that note. One is there's a uh, theology professor that I know, not a Bethel College prof, uh, (laughs) but uh, a a theology professor who doesn't even know for sure if there's a God. In fact, she doesn't really think there is a God at this Mm -hmm. point. But she practices this every day, and Mm -hmm. she says it is so helpful and meaningful in her own life, in her own spiritual journey, helping her along. I have a very good friend who was an atheist. Now he's more of an agnostic. That is, he's not sure if God exists or not. He's going through this. He's been going through this now for a few months, and he said it's really changing his life and uh, drawing him more into the transcendent in Mm -hmm. some ways, to use Mm -hmm. his language. And then literally just today, I met with a guy who has lost his faith, and we were talking, and he was asking me about my own spiritual journey, and I was talking about these uh, daily offices along the way. He says, that sounds very interesting. Might have to try that. So, Yeah. yeah. Another thing, as, as I hear you describe it, another thought that comes to mind for me is, um, so, so like, an, like for Southland City Church staff doesn't have an office right now. We kind of work remote, and we, we meet up when we need to. I work at home a lot. My workday doesn't have a lot of external structure po- imposed on it, and that sounds really good if you're coming from a place where there's a lot of structure imposed on you, like a nine-to-five desk job maybe, but at least for me, what I discovered pretty early on is it's exhausting to have to decide every day have to kind of make up your workflow and decide how to fit in what matters and all of that. And uh, as we were getting ready for this week, um, in my work life, I've, I've realized there's actually a ton of power that comes from like kind of pre-deciding and structuring my week with some blocks for this and that, right? It just, it's exhausting. And I've been reading about this phenomenon that we call decision fatigue, which is really sort of well-researched and documented that, that today in the year 2017, um, people like us who live in the world that we live in today, we have to make many, many, many times more decisions every day than most human beings have ever had to make in a day, right? Think about everything we decide now. We decide what to wear and what to eat for breakfast and where to have lunch for our lunch meeting and what to do with this hour of the day. And I mean, there's just a lot there, right? And it'll wear you out, which is why by like seven o'clock at night, you're just stuck on the couch eating a sleeve of Oreos watching Netflix because you've used up all of your good decision making, right? If you made it to that point in the day, you're a champ and you got like no energy left for that. But as you describe sort of um, the the content of these prayers has sort of been pre-written and uh, the times for prayer have been pre-decided. Part of what I actually feel is like a re- I imagine that being relieving. Is that, is that your It, it is so helpful for me because, I mean, there are days when I have a hundred things I want to pray about, but there are other days I'm thinking, okay, I pray for my wife and kids and dog. Uh, I don't have a dog, <laughs> but if I had one, I'd pray for it. Um, okay, you know, and it's just, it can be stressful because, you know, I want to spend more time in prayer. What do I pray about? And you're trying to come up with something to pray for it where these are prayers that cover basically every major thing you could think about in the world that mm-hmm. have been set, again, for hundreds of years. There's beautiful prayers that are there. You can just pray them and relax in that, rest in that. Yeah. Um, so you've been doing this sort of pattern of fixed prayer for quite a while now. Yeah. If you could go back to Chad Meister, back in history, before you had 
embedded these practices in your life yeah. and sort of talk to that Chad from the perspective you have today about yeah. why you would do this and, and the effect it's had, what, yeah. what would you say to that Chad? I think I would say some things like, um, do you want to live a life that's centered, that's anchored, that's rooted in Christ, that's stable throughout the day? One that even when there are hardships that come along, you're steady along the way. One that helps you to be focused in your spiritual life, but in other parts of your life. Uh, ways to be more attentive to your wife's needs. Um, <laughs> then engage in this kind of prayer life, yeah. and it'll be very helpful for you. I've also, um, I mean, just in our friendship, I've known you to be... Um, like in your work, uh, academically, and in your relationships, I've known you to be a person who, you, like, you cover a lot of ground. Uh, Chad's like one of the most insanely productive people I know. You you forge into new territory. Um, you know, one year you're in England at Oxford or Cambridge or Birmingham studying and working in new fields and areas. And I, I think just watching you and talking with you a lot, I've gathered that the the freedom that you have to to work in a lot of unexpected and creative ways. It's not so much constrained by these practices. I think I've heard from you, it's in fact empowered by some of these practices, right? I think that's very true. Yes, it really has. Yeah. It, it's also, I think, the case, in fact, not, not only do I think, but it's been demonstrated by recent brain research that if a person will spend um, about 20 minutes a day in prayer or meditation over a period of six weeks, mm -hmm. that that person will feel more centered and feel actually closer to God or the transcendent. There's something about that practice that we're wired up to be doing something like this. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's very helpful. It's very, very centering. Mm -hmm. And so I'd encourage you to give it a try, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Chad. Chad is, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of one of the centering forces for our church. Um, you people may not know that, but uh, through our friendship and Chad's on our board and years before South End City Church existed, Chad and I were, were dreaming together about some of this stuff. So I'm really grateful, um, not for just for today, but for all of that you've spoken into our church. You guys want to thank Chad? Thank you. So uh, before we go, we're, we're almost wrapped up. But uh, I want to go back to that idea of like the intimate moments of our day and the intimate spaces in our lives. And um, again, like if we went to your home, I bet we would probably find that you have you kind of decorated your home with things that really matter that speak to you about what your life means to you, right? Uh, photos or paintings or scriptures or, or just things that sort of speak to you about that, right? Uh, but I wonder what would happen if we did a bit of an inventory, not on our intimate sort of space in life, but the intimate parts of our day, you know, morning, maybe your lunch break, maybe the afternoon, the evening, your bedtime. Um, some of us have schedules that vary from day to day, but for most of us, there's probably some patterns, right? And in the same way that space has a structure to it that we build with walls and, and lights and furniture, our time has a structure to it that we build with behaviors and patterns and practices or addictions or compulsions or whatever, right? So I thought um, the, the index card is just for you if it helps right now. So you're not going to turn them in or anything like that. But we thought, what if we just took a few minutes to sort of take an inventory of our regular daily flow? Uh, you might want to do a schedule like 7 a.m. to whenever you go to bed, whatever like your earliest hour of the day is to your latest hour. And maybe just sort of reflect on like, okay, the alarm goes off. What's the next thing I do every day? Is it, you know, hit the snooze button? <laughs> Great. Is it go straight to breakfast or the bathroom? Is it... Uh, reflect on what's ahead. Is it check your email from your smartphone while you lay in bed? Like that, that would be like a fixture in time in the same way that like you decorate space with a flat screen TV with your company's news ticker or that photo, right? So uh, you could take a moment to sort of inventory the current pattern of your day, 
the things that happen every day. Those are sort of fixtures in time. And then you might ask yourself, like, how's that working out? Like, is that help? Is, 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 am I feeling more centered or less centered because of this or in spite of this? And then maybe you might decide that there's, you might want to add something uh, to your pattern. You might want to add a fixture, if you will. You might want to decide that for the next 30 days, I'm, I'm just going to try beginning my day with, like, the first 15 minutes, I'm not going to check my phone yet. But instead, I'm going to get out of bed and, and find the right chair to sit and I might read scripture. I might keep an eye out for those prayer books that we're going to let you guys know about. I might, uh, I might use the Headspace app and do some silent meditation for 10 minutes just to sort of clear that out for a bit. Um, I don't know if it's morning or afternoon or evening, but we thought let's sort of take an inventory of our, the way that our, our days flow right now. Let's ask ourselves, how is that working out? And let's consider maybe installing something in the pattern of our days that speaks uh, more truthfully to us about who we are and what our lives mean or helps us find a greater groundedness. So uh, we'll do that. And in the meantime, uh, Zach and Jeremy are going to come up and give us a little bit of contemplative uh, accompaniment while we do it. <laughs> 